you'd prefer an up-close view than the one from behind the knife. When you prefer your conversation be more audible than the bleeding, that's when you know you'd rather be here in Tiger Country. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk about trauma surgery, life, trauma surgery, powerboats, trauma surgery, cats, and the mandolin. You're listening to Tiger Country. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Tiger Country podcast. After a brief hiatus from everybody not having or having COVID, I'd like to welcome back uh, Dr. Joe DeBose and Dr. Rishi Kundi, who started the podcast for us a couple of years ago. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Greg McGee and Dr. David Feliciano uh, back to the podcast, one of our regulars to discuss uh, thoracic inlet and uh, subclavian and axillary uh, vascular injuries. Uh, my name is Dr. Milos Buhovats. I'm gonna be helping the more junior faculty navigate these conversations, asking some of the more basic questions. And I'll, I'll leave the, the actual interesting things to Dr. DuBose and Dr. Kundi. Um, so gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Um, Dr. DuBose, Dr. Kundi, take it away. Great. And thanks so much, Milos, for putting all this together again. As, as Milos mentioned, we've had a little bit of a hiatus as some of us have changed locations and, uh, and uh, changed locations and done other things. Uh, but we're really excited to be back. And I'm going to start kick this off with uh, addressing my uh, mentor and, and good friend, Dr. David Feliciano. And I want to ask Dr. Felicione, you're such a great teacher on this thing, and you've seen so many of these injuries. Kind of a two-part question here. When you are sitting in the trauma bay and you hear about a, 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 when do you start thinking about based on history, axillus subclavian, and, and what mechanisms are, are classic for that in your, in your experience? Uh, they're, they're primarily penetrating wounds, obviously. And I'm always looking for patients presenting with the regular God forbid, hard signs of vascular injury, uh, rarely bleeding, pulsating hematoma, Rui and or thrill, signs of a full occlusion, or a large hemothorax with a supraclavicular wound on ultrasound suggesting bleeding. The other more atypical things are patient really has a different blood pressure in that extremity when you take it at different times because of the incredible collaterals around the shoulder. I have several arteriograms of complete occlusion of the subclavian in the first or second portion. And then a patient who has a normal blood pressure on one blood pressure exam and then five minutes later, a different blood pressure. The same is true for a pulse. You can have moments where the collaterals are open and you have a normal pulse at the brachial or radial. And then five minutes later, it's disappeared, presumably for reasons of spasm. But to summarize a long answer, regular heart signs, classic of an arterial injury or signs of a changing pulse and flow to the upper extremity on different blood pressure 
or pulse exams. And what about mechanisms? For me, uh, you know, I've seen a variety of different mechanisms. The, the old car out the hand window that get flexed. Uh, what, what are the, some of the classic mechanisms you've seen? It's generally periclavicular penetrating wounds, more commonly gunshot wounds in urban centers. And then if, you, if you're hinting at major blunt injuries, uh, the subclavian injuries that I've seen have all been within two to three centimeters of the aorta on the left side uh, and some on the right side, also proximal, usually from sliding under a shoulder harness seat belt. And those are somewhat controversial as to whether they should be fixed, particularly in a patient with blunt occlusion and a non-dominant extremity. Thank you. Rishi? Uh, so this is a question for Greg. Greg, it's good to see you again. Uh, good to see you too. So with the patient in the trauma bay, we have a suspicion of this injury. What imaging would you start out with? What, what kind of immediately points you towards axillosubclavian injury, imaging-wise? Well, first of all, I want to say thanks for having me on the podcast. It's uh, it's quite an honor and um, to to be on with such esteemed colleagues, especially Dr. Feliciano, who uh, uh, is um, you know just uh, someone I look up to so much, as well as you guys. Um, but in terms of uh, studies, I think you know it's the rare patient who doesn't need a chest X-ray. I mean, you, as Dr. Feliciano already mentioned, you're looking for hemothorax, pneumothorax, fractures, uh, foreign bodies. Um, especially in the setting of, of uh, um, penetrating trauma. Um, a FAST or EFAST to look at, to rule out um, pericardial tamponade, uh, blood in the chest. Um, and then um, in the setting of a patient without uh, hard signs of vascular injury requiring immediate um, trip to the operating room, then a CTA if you're, if you have a high index of suspicion, but um, but it's safe to do so. Okay, is there any role in the stable patient for uh, duplex um, before repair? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, it's gonna depend on the center and the access to that, how, how immediately available duplexes are. Um, I think uh, it, it's difficult in my experience um, in the setting of penetrating trauma to be able to get a good duplex um, that's going to be definitive. So duplex will tell you if you have decreased flow in that arm, or um, but um, it's not going to be, I think, my go-to. Okay. I don't know if anybody else disagrees with that. I'd be curious to know. No, I, I, I can't imagine it would make a difference in the initial management. Uh, okay, so we get the initial imaging and we're going to the CT scan. CT comes back. What do you look for that kind of increases your uh, catecholamines? What what scares you about your CTA? So uh, obviously you're looking for extravasation, um, vessel injury, uh, arterial injury, venous injury, um, either due to uh, hemorrhage or due to uh, occlusion. I think if you have a stable patient, it's more often going to be occlusion or pseudoaneurysm or um, uh, spasm dissection, hematoma. 
those are the things you're going to be looking out for. I think the major things that need to be are going to need to be treated are uh, a are bleeding or occlusion. With with blunt injury, do you kind of uh, informally extend the grading system when you when you assess these at all? Yeah. So I, I don't. For sorry, go ahead. No, just the, the system that we kind of developed for both BCBI and blunt thoracic injury, you know, proceeding from the in, inside of the artery outwards. Do you, do you look at all vessels like that, particularly axillus subclavian? Uh, in terms of the whether or not there's a, a intimal injury or, mm -hmm. or a hair, a hematoma dissection, et cetera. Yes. I think we do. Absolutely. Yeah. I think as, as um, looking at, you know, in vascular imaging constantly, um, you're, you are looking for those things. Um, I'm not sure that I would extend the grading system, the blunt grading system to penetrating trauma. I don't think it's as relevant right. um, personally. Um, one of the things that I, I find myself uh, telling our fellows again and again is on a CTA, uh, an occlusion of a vessel does not mean that the vessel is not transected. You know, there's, there's a certain level of um, relaxation that uh, some of the fellows in residence feel when they're like, oh, it's just occluded. I'm like, not just occluded at all. Uh, in that kind of situation, do you think that there's a role uh, for catheter-based studies, angiography, venography? That's a good question. I, I think there, the role in my mind of, I guess what you're getting at is, is there a role for diagnostic angiography or venography? And, and the, in my mind, that comes down to, um, are you, how are you planning on treating it if you found an injury? So if you're planning on uh, catheter-based intervention for uh, treatment, I think you, you know, the diagnostic part is part of that study or part of that intervention. So um, if you feel like there's a vessel injury, that vessel injury should be stented, then the angiography is part of that procedure. In terms of a diagnostic approach, if you have a small injury or you're suspicious for an injury, there may be an injury, you can't tell from the CT scan. Uh, I'm not sure that, that um, I would proceed directly to angiography in that situation. Okay. Is there a role for um, treatment of a stable patient with venous occlusion and possibly transection uh, with no instability, no extravasation? You just don't see the vein on your venogram, on your CTV, what have you. Uh, in a stable patient, no hematoma and, um, and possible vein injury. Yeah. I personally, I think I would say probably not. Um, I think that vast majority of patients can tolerate uh, a venous occlusion without symptoms. And if they don't have massive arm swelling or phlegmasia, then uh, I don't know that treating that would be necessary. Okay. Joe? My turn again, Dr. Feliciano, back in the hot seat. Um, a lot, you, I, I think few would argue with me that you're the father of vascular injury research and you've been doing this since when do you think your vast first vascular injury research paper was written 78 or 79 uh, you know we put out a whole series anominates subclavian axillary almost all penetrating injuries yes and it was a classic paper in those days a report retrospectively via chart review with, yes. with some internal information in the M&M. Uh, they wouldn't be acceptable today. And since they were clinically oriented, 
they never get on a program like the AST anymore, but that's another discussion. It is another discussion. But, you know, a lot has changed since that, those late 70s. Obviously, we have things that whether good ideas or bad, we're trying to come to employ in the trauma setting. And one of those is the hybrid operating room, which is not every place has this and, and not all hybrid operating rooms are the same by definition. Some of them have a vascular C-arm. Some of them have a, 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 a built into the, the walls um, or the ceiling, uh, a modular C-arm. And we often discuss about the, the, the potential of these things for, for trauma and vascular trauma in particular. What do you think, what do you see? You've seen this past, you've seen the current and you can look forward to the future. What is the hybrid OR? And I, in the context of this specific injury, is this a useful adjunct? Is this something that's gonna fall by the wayside? What do you think? Well, I'm biased in the sense that I work at shock trauma currently and I've watched the advantages of the hybrid room. Uh, I've read the papers by Dr. Harfouche and others. So in a center that has a volume of trauma, much of it penetrating, it seems very worthwhile to me for patients with, for example, hepatic injuries or axillosubclavian injuries. I think a hospital has to look at its trauma volume and see if they can make up the two to two and a half million dollars, a real hybrid OR cost with all the building, the lining of the room, the monitoring equipment, and obviously the angiogram equipment. But I, I've seen the value of this in the types of injuries that I mentioned. So if you were building the Feliciano Trauma Center with your own retirement fund, you would have a hybrid OR? I would think it would be a good idea if you have the volume of trauma where you can make up that cost over the first couple of years, absolutely. Okay, I'm, I presume if you were building said trauma center, it'd also have a boat dock on the back, but that's a whole separate <laughs> question. No question. Um, you've seen in those papers in the 70s and 80s, and as you started to build this portfolio that everyone still continues to refer to as our foundation of vascular injury knowledge, there was an endovascular wasn't really a thing or an option back in those days, but you've seen and been even now late into your career integrally involved in those decisions and that evolution throughout. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's not just, you're not some antiquated person we respect in the past, but you've been involved in these discussions continuously. What do you see now, knowing what you've known, what you've seen as the role between open and endovascular repair, specifically for this injury, which you could fix either way, right? So who should need an open, who should need an endo in your opinion? I think the data from yourself, uh, Branco and others justify a continuing aggressive approach to endovascular means of fixing axillosubclavian arteries. Though as we have discussed, I would love to see some longer follow-up. I don't think there's any question that exposure, particularly the subclavian is tedious anatomically challenging for a young surgeon who only sees one of these every couple of years. Where endovascular, I think it does not have a place or in those patients where there is external bleeding, intrapleural bleeding especially, and somebody can't get a balloon, occlusive balloon across, or if you cannot cross a transection. So whenever my good colleague, Dr. Scalia, gets up at a meeting and says, 
we do all our subclavian and axillary injuries with guide wires and stents, I like to get up right after them and say nonsense, because it is. I mean, there's still a need for this, though it's obviously decreasing every day. But there's clearly times where endovascular may not be accomplished, cannot be accomplished quick enough, cannot be accomplished with total occlusion, where I think you still need to know open approaches. That's a real problem for a younger surgeon. Younger trauma-trained surgeons do not spend much time anatomically in the axillo-subclavian area. Yeah, and Milos is our youngest member of our group. And I think along those lines, he had some other questions that he was asking us about the other day. And I, best pose for you. Go ahead, by, Milos. Yeah, by far, you, you, have, you have research, sir, that has a number of years uh, on me. So uh, thank you so much. And, and you know, the, the maximally invasive surgeon in me, and I've done a couple of these, wants to approach every single uh, subclavian axillary injury open, but that's obviously not the right answer. And, and you mentioned uh, a couple of instances where uh, doing endovascular might not might not be the appropriate thing. So, is there is there even a role in a hemodynamically stable patient anymore for attempting a big open repair? Not if they're not externally bleeding not bleeding intrapleurally, not rapidly filling up the supraclavicular area of the hematoma. I don't really think so. I, I've been fascinated reading Joe's and other colleagues' papers about the excellent success other than the legendary Houston paper, which had such terrible results at the beginning of the endovascular era. So if you can prove that you have good long-term results, then I see no reason to do a large invasive operation in the hemodynamically stable patient or a patient who's been stabilized by passage of an occlusive balloon. This is a big hit on surgeon and patient, particularly patient, but also surgeons who again, have not really been there I mean, you need to know where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is on the right, right? You need to not harm the brachial plexus if you get in there in a supraclavicular incision and you're confronted with massive bleeding. You need to know what to do with the vein when you have bilateral injuries. I know we're going to come to damage control, and I'll leave that out just for a minute. But if good long-term results can be documented, there is no reason to operate on a patient's artery if you have capable people to do it and the patient is stable. You, you've mentioned patient stability a couple of times now. Do you think there is a role for endovascular treatment in unstable patients? Or is that something that we can just put to the side? I'm not an endovascular surgeon, but if you have documentation of bleeding, particularly on physical exam or ultrasound or even CTA, it's a big artery and patients will exsanguinate really in about 10 to 15 minutes. So the caveat is you've got to have passage of an occlusive balloon before you pass the stent, unless you're an incredibly rapid endostenter. 
we 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 may have a few on this call, so I'll, I'll 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 let him answer that question. And my, with all your experience, have you seen? Is there really a big difference between the penetrating mechanism in terms of a gunshot wound versus a stabbing? And would that influence how you would approach how you would repair this? I don't think there's much of a difference. It would be unusual for a stab to result in complete transection, while bullets do that on a fairly regular basis. To me, it's the manifestation. If they're externally bleeding and I can't control it with a balloon, if they're bleeding intrapleurally and I can't uh, manage it with a balloon first, then I would go to open repair. Uh, the last TASCO case I did which was a month or two ago, I had two patients in one week at a level one trauma center who bled to death while the surgeons were making a supraclavicular incision and they were clearly bleeding intrapleurally, was not recognized. The surgeons needed to do a thoracotomy, they were in the wrong place. Be mm -hmm. the same for endo. If you're really hemorrhaging and you can't control it with a balloon, you better know how to get there quickly. Open. Yes, sir. Amen to that. Um, but I, I think that now I get a chance to nerd out a little bit. Dr. McGee and I are both dual trained, open and uh, you know trauma and vascular trained people. So is Dr. Kundi. We had to do two fellowships to learn what Dr. Feliciano did in regular training in the 70s. But all that being said, I get a chance for me to nerd out about endovascular approach. And Greg, the, there are options out there, right? There's different techniques and access sites. And when you distill down to open vascular repair, it's all about proximal distal control and then you manage what's in the middle. And endo to me is much the same way. The difference is you have to get a wire across it and then manage what's in the middle. So what's your options and thought process in terms of where you get access and how you get that wire traverse, particularly some of those challenging cases? I think so. Before we go on to that, if you don't mind, I wanted to add one comment uh, to something that uh, was mentioned before. First of all, I agree with 99% um, of everything Dr. Feliciano said. The one um, thing that he mentioned a couple times that I think is um, important is the, the issue of durability. Uh, and in my mind, um, durability is a luxury of the live patient. Um, and and so if you can have an outcome that is not 100% perfect, but stops the bleeding, uh, even if the likelihood is, even if the durability is not as good as open, then you take an acute situation into a chronic situation. I think that's still a good outcome. Um, with regard to the question of access, was that the question, Joe? Yeah, where do you approach? I mean, you can come femoral, you can come from the arm. Where do, you, where do you set up your access and what are your, what's your approach to getting that wire across that injury? So for me personally, um, I think the arm is the easiest approach. It retrograde um, arterial access is um, direct. Uh, you don't have to traverse the arch. You don't have to sort of find where the vessels come off. The angulation is much easier. So the pushability is much easier. It's the... Um, the, uh, the only real situation in which um, you can't get a wire across the injury pretty easily is a complete transection with a large hematoma. Um, so I, I prefer coming from the arm for that reason. 
you know, if it's, if it, and then maybe an adjunct to that is like, are there situations in which endo is not appropriate? I think those are the situations where the, the vessel injury is close to the aorta. Mm -hmm. So that you, do, you can't get a proximal seal with a stent graft. Those are situations where open is by far and away needed. Um, um, but yeah, our, our, I prefer arm access. And what I, you hear this sometimes talked, especially those ones that are transected, big hematoma, hard to navigate. People talk about this uh, rendezvous approach or body floss, which always sounded to me like some kind of diet plan with some juice drink or something. <laughs> but the uh, what is that? And what is that technique employ? Sure. Thanks for that um, lead up. So Basically, the concept is having access through and through wire access across uh, an artery from two different access sites. So what you're describing there is uh, arm access in, in the situation of access of clavian, as well as typically femoral access. And so a wire is passed across the injury. It is snared from another access point. You bring the long wire through and through the other access point. So now you have wire out both ends, um, and that allows complete control and very easily, uh, very easy pushability of sheaths, catheters, wires, balloons, et cetera, um, across the lesion. My, um, I think in the setting of, so we do this very, very frequently in the setting of aneurysms, treatment of um, um, complex aneurysms uh, from above and below. But in the setting of trauma, I think that's a more um, rare situation. Um, I, I've heard described from Ben Starnes a brachial injury where they snared a wire and the hematoma and they brought it out and they stented it. And I wanted to kind of think, why didn't you just cut down on the brachial artery and repair it? It just seems much easier. Um, so I think sometimes there are fancy endovascular te techniques that we know how to do um, that are not always the most useful in the setting of trauma. Yeah, no, I agree. We can uh, have over-enthusiasm for endovascular technologies, and per particularly for peripheral, it's, uh, it's a hotbed of discussion, as I have well learned in the Twitter rooms across the uh, vascular realm, and Dr. Feliciano has heard me vent about. Um, so venous injuries, let's talk about in, in the open context, if you're fixing an arterial injury in an extremity, there's often that debate, okay, the vein's out too, should I fix that? I can't really think of a, as you mentioned, most of these venous injuries, if we fix the arterial injury endovascularly, is there ever a context you can think of where you would probably, you would want to go and fix the venous injury as well? Um, endovascularly? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I can't think of a good situation uh, in that situation. I guess, I guess if you had a, um, a large open wound um, from a blast injury in the, in the thoracic outlet, uh, where bleeding was not controlled after arterial repair, potentially, you know, uh, an endograft in the, in the subclavian vein would make sense. I think that's a pretty unusual situation um, that I have never encountered personally. Yeah, I haven't either. I often think about it, but I haven't really found one. I think the venous injuries in general, the only thing it's actually influenced me to do is think a little harder about fasciotomy, depending upon the associated soft tissue injury of the hand, how long they've been ischemic, but just upper extremity fasciotomies from a subclavian artery injury, just pretty uncommon. So always something to think yeah. about. Let me ask you about the specific arterial injuries. We talked about this inside. Rishi talked a little bit about this inside to out, how we talk about these injuries. We call them different grades. We call them pseudoaneurysms or fistulas, but let's break down those latter two. So pseudoaneurysms, right? What is that? And what is, if we just, do we, they all need treatment? 
And what is the natural history of the, as we understand it of the ones that we don't treat? Okay, so um, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to uh, people who, who know about this thing, but uh, a pseudoaneurysm is an injury. It's an, a full thickness injury in the artery uh, that is leading to blood outside of the artery. It is, um, you know, in, in, if it was hemorrhage, it would be called hemorrhage, uh, or, but uh, if it's not hemorrhaging, then it's contained by the perivascular space um, and um, controlled in that way. Um, very small pseudoaneurysms. I think the natural history of those would be that they would um, most of the time thrombose, but in larger ones tend to tend to get bigger uh, over time. And so I would recommend treating those. What's your take? Do you follow those, the ones you don't treat? Do you follow them with the, well, how do you follow them? Uh, and is there a size above which you're like, yeah, you know, that one needs to be treated? You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know that I have in my mind um, the exact um, percentage or number or size, uh, but I, I, I guess it's just sort of for me, um, at least at this point, uh, eyeball test of like looking at the size of the artery, the size of the uh, injury, the pseudoaneurysm. And, and if it's a significant um, size compared to the artery that's injured, then I think that that is something that should be uh, addressed and fixed. Um, in terms of the small ones, let's say there was a small, um, you know, very tiny pseudoaneurysm from a brachial artery um, due to blunt trauma or something like that, maybe that would be one that we would follow and with, with a duplex, um, you know, but I think that that's um, more often than not, they're the larger ones that, and, and these are from penetrating injuries that should be fixed. Another injury we sometimes see from penetrating is the AV fistula, that arterial venous communication, most commonly from the penetrating mechanisms. And we, what guides you to say those can be watched? Which of those can be watched and which of those need to be treated? What's your general gestalt on that? So uh, my general gestalt on that is um, these tend not to close. Uh, traumatic fistulas uh, tend to stay open. Uh, they tend to get bigger over time. Um, and, and for that reason, it's probably wise to treat them. Um, if they, uh, the, the strong indications for treatment would be a, a decrease in distal pulse or decreased, uh, uh, blood flow, um, where the majority of flow is going through the fistula, you know, that would be a very, very clear indication for treating it. Um, treating them is quite straightforward. Um, you just need to take, uh, repair the, um, cover the site of injury or repair it, um, and the artery. No, no need to treat the venous part. So we're basically just taking away the connection. Um, it's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, me too. I think that's great. Great insights. I appreciate it, Dr. McGee. Dr. Kundi, you want to go next? Sure. Um, before I do, actually, I wanted to ask Greg something and actually ask everyone. Uh, a few months ago, Ravi Rajani down at Emory and I got into not an argument. Um, things, <laughs> it's okay to be an argument There were things Robbie. thrown. I get in arguments um, with Ravi too. <laughs> but with uh, axillary subclavian injuries that are treated endovascularly, if there's a sizable hematoma, um, Ravi opens them as a rule. And I am very hesitant to do so because I think on the, you know, if there's a significant arterial injury, by opening it, you're releasing a certain amount of pressure and putting that endovascular, that stent graft under an additional amount of stress that's unopposed from the extraluminal side. So I'm very interested to hear what pretty much everyone on the call now has to say about that. 
so you're talking about opening a hematoma mm-hmm. after, after having after successful repair. Yeah. Big hematoma, you get the thing fixed and then you get a stent graft across the main arterial injury. I guess my only concern would be the back bleeding from the branches that are avulsed, right? Especially with blunt injuries. But I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, Rishi, that the tamponade that surround, that's is going to mitigate that back bleeding. And you're really not saving yourself anything by going and opening up a space that doesn't need to be at least emergently open. Let you, there is, if it's a hematoma that's not impeding blood supply or causing nerve compromise, you can give it some time and let it see if it's going to resorb or you need to drain it later. That's my take. What do you think, Greg? Right. I, I guess I was in my mind thinking about what would be the indication to open a hematoma if there's no symptoms. So it, and to me, if you haven't, um, if you're worried about um, nerve compression and leading to, um, you know, uh, neurocompromise, I guess that makes sense. So I have seen a patient where that was the case um, or that was the concern uh, that I was called for. I, I think that's um, more often than not, the nerve injury is caused by the mechanism of trauma. So if there's a penetrating or, or even blunt injury, even more so um, to the artery or vein, most likely that's what caused the nerve injury. Um, and, and it just wasn't well documented and, um, prior to fixing the bleeding. So we had a case similar to what you're describing where you know, a patient had a axillary uh, artery injury, it was stented by one of our partners, they had a hematoma, they, there was some um, resident documentation that the arm was okay, then the next day the arm was like paralyzed or something like that. And, and they were worried that this was due to the hematoma and they wanted me to open the hematoma. And um, uh, I think there was also like a clavicle fracture that the, that the orthopedic surgeon wanted to operate on and he wanted us there for backup. You know, and so I said, well, if you need to, if you need to open this hematoma to fix the, the, the bone, I'm, I'm happy to be around in case there's some back bleeding or there's some, you know, tributary branches like you talked about, Joe, to fix. Um, but I don't, I don't know that opening the hematoma itself um, is going to do a whole lot in terms of um, compression. And there's so much, I mean, the pleura should have a lot of space there to open up to not cause compression of the brachial plexus, I would think. Dr. Feliciano, what do you, what do you think, sir? I've seen one patient who lost the brachial plexus from compression. So any patient with a large hematoma who complains in any way of sensory and or motor change in the upper extremity should really be considered for evacuation. I can think of two others where we had symptoms uh, and as Greg said, potentially related to a wound to the brachial plexus, but worrisome enough that we went ahead and evacuated. But I agree, it's incredibly rare that there are patients with massive hematomas that you're going to see, and you just have to pay attention to their complaints, particularly after open or stenting. I think it gets to the point of um, making sure you have a good exam before and after whatever intervention you do to know if there was some complication due to your, due to your operation or um, if it was due to the injury and, and to document any change in that, because that's, that's what Dr. Feliciano is saying. And I completely agree with that. Okay. So I am going to tell Ravi that you all agree with me. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> moving on. He won't Dr. be surprised. He won't be surprised. <laughs> Okay, Luciano, let's let's talk about the choice of incision and exposure for these injuries. Um, there are, I think, two 
different phases in my education and training. One is when I was a resident, when I was told for proximal left subclavian, do the second uh, inner space. And then later on, when all of my senior colleagues said, don't do that, that's an incredibly hard exposure. Um, I don't know why we teach you that. So it, what, what incisions do you tend to go after? Obviously, depending on where the arteries enter. Uh, it really depends on how acute the situation is and the location based on either trajectory from the outside or CTA. Uh, for second portion of subclavian in the stable patient, almost everybody does a supraclavicular incision. Novice surgeons don't recognize ahead of time how deep this is in terms of the vessel. So traditionally, if I'm struggling in any way, I take out the middle third of the clavicle. Now, if I'm really in trouble, I just saw it with a giggly at mid-clavicle, put a towel clip in each end and have a medical student pull them apart. But ideally, I like to take out the middle third if I can't see to control bleeding or do a decent repair. If I think it's a more proximal first portion of subclavian, you know, proximal to the scalenus, you know, on the right side, again, if you're a novice, it may be better to add a median sternotomy to the right supraclavicular. I mean, I have pictures of that incision. It's way overdone. But if you're in trouble and you think you have a more proximal lesion, that's the incision. The same is sort of true on the left side, though if you really have a proximal extra pleural subclavian injury, most people are gonna tell you to go into the really the fourth inner space or the third inner space to get at least a proximal clamp on. Um, with third portion, it's way out. You occasionally have to get axillary control for distal control. And I just curve my supraclavicular incision across the clavicle into an infraclavicular incision, pull the pec minor laterally, and you can get a clamp on the first portion of the axillary. So again, a long-winded answer. It depends on hemodynamic stability, and it depends on presumed location and how great it is to have a CTA first. I've had to make uh, the classic book thoracotomy on the left side several times almost always because when I went in for what I thought was a second portion behind the scaliness was actually extended down in the first portion and I couldn't get it, particularly with active bleeding. You can't really go into the third inner space. In my experience, it's so narrow. And even with a finocchietto in place, it just doesn't spread apart. So. Ideally for me, if I really want to get up high on the left side, a fourth intercostal space incision to get proximal control. So it's really either supraclavicular or some extension with that. When you take out the middle third of the clavicle, do you save it and uh, call your orthopedic colleagues afterwards? <laughs> it became a fetish of mine. If I just saw it, I drill a hole in either end and put a wire in as a U, as you do for ribs from back to front, because I don't want the sharp points of the wire sticking my repair. 
if I've taken out a segment, yes, I put it back in. I'm, I'm not one of those surgeons who's cavalier when I do things to patients. I, I really try and fix it. And I've used both dynamic compression plates from orthopedics where you have four angled holes, two on either side of a fracture, and you just drill the holes and screw the screw in. With a full segmental resection, I'd probably use two U, U wires. It doesn't take long. You don't need an orthopod. The scrub nurses know the drills better than I do. And you just tell them, bring me an orthopedic drill and bring me a plate or I'll use a sternal wire. But traditionally, in stable patients, I've always put it back together and it heals great. Uh, another question about this, you mentioned getting the CTA to guide you. If you get a CTA and there is an occlusion, uh, a long segment occlusion, and you know somewhere in there is the injury, do you operate and make your incision as if the start of the occlusion is the proximal injury? Hmm. I haven't thought about it. I, it. I'm pretty much based on part one, part two, and part three. If I'm really concerned this goes into part one and I've gotten trapped on the left side, I would probably do the left anterolateral high thoracotomy to get the proximal left subclavian at least looped and or controlled with a clamp, either one. Okay. If I thought it was really in zone two behind uh, the scalenus, no, I just use the supraclavicular with some clavicular manipulation. Okay, and you mentioned uh, your choice of incision varying with the, the hemodynamic stability of the patient. If the patient's arrested, uh, and it is from, let's say, a penetrating axial subclavian injury. Does that affect where you do your thoracotomy? Uh, not really. Um, you can go to four if you can get up there and get a clamp, at least on the proximal vessel, which, as you know, does nothing unless you also in some way get a balloon or a quick dissection of the distal. I've always been fascinated you can completely occlude a subclavian proximally and, and see no difference in bleeding because the extensive collateral. So you have to do both, but theoretically a, a proximal clamp will control some of the hemorrhage and it'll allow you to put your fist or your finger through the thoracotomy to clamp or compress the distal vessel. For the novice surgeon, I've never been able to clamp proximally or distally through the through the intrapleural exposure. The brachial plexus is there. It's hard to identify what's bleeding. And again, you, you tend to compress it until somebody then goes supraclavicularly or they can get a balloon through the wrist. I see, okay. Um, with that, Milos, back to you. Well, um... That, that sort of leads in very nicely to my next question, because I found myself in, in one of these situations where you, you you'd would rather not be. I, I had a young gentleman that had a proximal injury, proximal third of the left subclavian, and I started with a supraclavicular incision. I thought I did a reasonably good, making, reasonably good job making sure that there was no um, intrapleural bleeding. Uh, he arrested during my repair. I managed to get control of everything and I found myself doing the trap door incision. So Dr. McGee, do you, is this 
did I trip up somewhere? Should I should I have done something different? Is is the trapdoor incision a, a thing of the past, or is it is it appropriate in certain situations? How'd your patient do? Uh, just finished his three month follow up. Uh, well, CTA CTV looked good. Can't can't argue with success. Uh, I think. Um, so it's an interesting question. I, um, you know, when I was thinking about this question, um, I'll tell you, like I operate on a subclavian artery um, at least once, if not twice, every single week uh, for carotid subclavian bypasses and transpositions. Uh, very, very fre frequently, very familiar with the exposure. And I will tell you, and I tell my residents, I never want to do this for trauma. It's, it's just a different, exposure, it is a different challenge when things are bleeding at you and you can't tell where everything is. Um, it, it is extremely challenging. So, um, you know, if you find myself in a situation where I have to do something open for whatever reason, I think um, I totally agree with Dr. Feliciano's point. If it's on the right side, it's a median sternotomy. You can control the anominant. You can then control the subclavian. Um, if it is on the left side, my, uh, I, I agree. I think a thoracotomy and the fourth space, uh, you can very easily get along the pleura uh, to where the, the, the um, clavicular uh, aortic junction is and put a clamp there. Um, trapdoor, I have not personally, I don't, I don't know that I've ever done a trapdoor uh, exposure, to be honest. I mean, I've definitely read about it in the textbooks, but um, it, I, I think that you know, you have to, it, knowledge is power. So if you know how to do that and you find yourself in a situation that's one of those rare situations where you need to do it, it's good to good to know that that's a, a possibility. But I think it, in my experience, at least that's that's hopefully rare. Yeah, once was enough. I'm not, not interested in repeating that a second time. Um, one of the questions uh, to Dr. McGee and, and, and the entire group, do you guys have a preference over once you're open, how you get control, vessel loops, clamps for the you know, young surgeons that you're teaching? What are you telling them? Well, uh, so I think you know, vessel loops are helpful for um, locating the artery and then to be able to pull up to expose better proximally distally. We I tell the residents you want to, you know, be right on top of the artery. And I think a lot of people are a little bit afraid to dissect directly on top of the artery, but that's the safest place to be. Um, and so once you have a vessel loop around it, you can hold it up. That allows you to um, find that plane a little bit more easily and to get a little bit more proximal or distal control, distal exposure, excuse me. I don't tend to use vessel loops um, in the axis of clavin location for clamping because I think it's just too big of an artery to do that well. I think um, I, I do use them for the vertebral so uh, that if you're exposing the subclavian artery and you need to uh, have control of the vertebral artery, the vessel loops are very helpful in that situation. If there's branches you just don't wanna take, um, uh, then vessel loops can be helpful like the lima. Um, but the majority of the branches I think can be sacrificed without really any uh, clinical sequelae. And so I, I wouldn't be a, a worried about doing that. In terms of the clamping, I would use uh, vascular clamps. And, and typically that for me is a Henley clamp, um, which looks like a hockey stick uh, for the proximal and then an angled debakey clamp or, or something similar for the distal. 
Um, I think that one of the learning points that the, the residents and the fellows have is have, that I've seen them uh, work their way through is given that the vast majority of their arterial exposures in the lower extremities, the change in consistency, the, the difference in tissue uh, between mm -hmm. the SFA common femoral and the, you know, butter-like, very relatively fragile uh, subclavian is something that like really has to be emphasized. Um, I, it's a little bit of a personal bias. I consider vessel loops to be capable of a lot of injury to the vessel uh, if they're kind of torqued up on very briskly. Uh, but the other thing is when they clamp, you know, three clamps, see if that does the job, don't immediately clamp all the way down, uh, which I think is, is an early training kind of instinct, if anyone else has experienced that. Yeah, Greg, you do a lot more currently. I mean, your your aortic practice is a large portion of your practice, so you do a lot of these transposition stuff. I I was always taught at a training in aortic center to be scared of the subclave and the ability to dissect it with an overaggressive clamp. And it is, from a tissue perspective, different than the vessels at other locations in that regard. Is that just my, my paranoia and lack of experience, or is that what you've experienced in your burgeoning uh, aortic practice? No, your comments uh, and reaches are spot on. The, there's a, a lot more elastin in the subclavian artery approximately than there is in the femoral arteries. And so it's a different uh, structure. It's uh, thinner walled. And so it is more um, susceptible to injury um, if you don't handle it um, with respect. Um, and so I think to Rishi's point about the number of clicks in a vascular clamp, I mean, I always tell um, when we have general surgery residents, I show them a difference between a vascular clamp and a non-vascular crushing clamp, and that, that you know that they're designed to occlude but not crush. Um, I think that's his point, which is you don't want to cause a clamp injury; you want to just stop the blood flow. You want to stop the bleeding, um, and and so I, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not exact. I forgot maybe the question, but yes, it is. It is a more um, uh, uh, it's an artery that needs to be handled with respect. Deal. Well, Richard, you wanted, I think you were going to ask, we were, I know Dr. Feliciano was saving the uh, damage control, which is always, when he talks about damage control, is always worth listening. So I'm going to let you lob these softballs to him. <laughs> oh, hang on, you, you're on mute. There you go. All right, Dr. Feliciano, what is a damage control uh, kind of algorithm or practice for axillary subclavian injuries? You can How often always, do you find yourself shunting? Yeah, you can always ligate the vein. And on the rarest, rarest of occasions where you have to get out of dodge, you could simultaneously ligate the artery. Though I can't recall doing that in 20 years. However, if you ligate both vein and artery, what Joe just said is very important. A forearm compartment syndrome is a real entity. And the last subclavian artery I fixed, and it took a while for reasons I no longer recall, and we ligated the vein, we measured compartment pressures in the left forearm, and the, you know they were over 50 millimeters or some crazy number. So we did add a fasciotomy. Otherwise, you would ligate the vein and probably put a shunt in. And the problem with the subclavian and shunting is the usual uh, 12 shunt that we use in most peripheral vascular 
repairs is too small and you may have to go to a 16 or even an 18 thoracostomy too, but that would be damage control. I would never uh, pack that wound open. Anytime I have shunts and I usually try and towel clip the skin to minimize contamination. Okay. Um, it, do you consider desiccation of the exposed artery to be a, a problem in the short term uh, when it's exposed like that? I don't think arteries should ever be exposed for whatever reason. Uh, you know, I learned when, during my trauma fellowship in Detroit that porcine xenografts or pigskin that, that can be quickly defrosted are sort of like putting skin right over the vessel repair or shunts. It keeps the area moist, it keeps the bacteria out. So historically I've used pigskin if I couldn't get the skin closed the first night. And then it lasts, as you know, for a couple of days, two to three, three to four, where it starts to look kind of tacky. But I, I really don't ever put any gauze or leave wounds open over peripheral vascular injuries and or repairs. I just don't, because I'm from the generation that didn't know about that in the beginning. And I have pictures of some vascular repairs that I did that were left exposed. And usually within four to five days, there is desiccation and blowout. That would be saphenous veins or the anastomoses and PTFE grafts. Uh, in that vein, haha. Uh, are there any specific tips for specific injuries that you want to share? Any particularly memorable cases that, that stand out? Well, to, to expand on what uh, Greg and Joe said, I, I have seen a resident, heavy-handed at the time, put on a debakey clamp and tear the subclavian artery right in half. So you have to be more than gentle with it. If you think you want to do an end-to-end -end anastomosis, those sutures will pull through if you have any tension. And it's why we often end up putting short grafts in. I mean, the, the subclavian could be incredibly mobilized, but if you have tension, the needle holes start to pull through. So I've often not tortured the vessel at all. If putting two clamps on still leaves me with a gap, I'd prefer to put in a graft and I always use eight millimeter PTFE ringed because I got in the habit with PTFE to use ring grafts, particularly in the groin and all, where scar tends to form over time and crush a PTFE graft. I have no proof that helps with a subclavian, but it, it certainly can't can harm it in any way that I know. Do you do your pairs with the arm abducted? Uh, in order to get an idea of what the maximal tension is going to be? You know, Ravi, I don't do that. I, whenever I prep for a possible subclavian, I prep the upper extremity separately so that I can move it from absolutely abducted down to the side to help me with exposure. I get really nervous when people have to modify their case depending on how they prepped and draped. One of the things Mike DeBakey was a fetishist, if you will, about was overexposing and overdraping all vascular procedures. And I extended that to trauma. It makes perfect sense. For example, a potential subclavian 
or axillary injury for me would be from contralateral nipple down to fingertips, way overexposed. Uh, better too much than too little. With yeah. that, uh, the fun part of the podcast, Joe, take it away. Absolutely. When Doctor, when Milo said, "Let's dust this thing off after people have moved and COVID has come and gone and come again," um, I said, "I'd be happy to do it with you, buddy." But I have to get the rapid fire random questions because that's my favorite part of the entire thing. So, Doctor Feliciano, you've been through this rodeo before. Are you ready for your rapid fire random questions? At my age, I don't know, but I think so. <laughs> All right, you got an hour to teach one skill to a colleague. What would it Preferably be? Probably me. What would it be? <laughs> or even if it's an expanded period of time, what one skill would you teach a young colleague who's coming to you for mentorship? As per our discussion last week, uh, the abdication of vascular trauma procedures by trauma surgeons has really upset me. I don't see any reason for it, but I would go to the animal lab and I'd teach them four things in vascular technique. You can do an anastomosis with stitches at 180 degrees rather than whatever one third of 360 is, uh, as described by Carell and Guthrie. So I've always done 180 degrees because it's just two quick super lines. Two, I teach them how to pass their needles through vessels at an absolute right angle because the suture material is the same size as the needle. If they wiggle their needle, the suture will not plug the hole. I would teach them how to leave the last couple sutures loose on an end-to-end -end or graft artery anastomosis to allow for proper flushing. And then I teach them the proper flushing sequence, which may vary depending on whether you're involving the carotid or peripheral artery. So I'd go back to Bob Rutherford's textbook, The Basic Techniques in Vascular Surgery, which apply to elective and or emergent. High quality stuff. So I assume I have been to your home. I know right now, as you look over your computer on the screen that you're looking at the river, correct? Am I correct? River. Yes, I am. So, and your boat is just off to your right outside of the building down by the pier. Um, I assume it's not winterized yet. That's correct. So you're taking Dr. Rosicki, who I've actually seen walk by in the hallway a couple of times as well, <laughs> I think, uh, on a boating adventure for the day and your typical boating adventure. Where are you going? What time of day and where are you going? The Chesapeake Bay is really windy and has big boats like yachts and tankers on their way to Baltimore. So it's very, very rough. Ideally, uh, Sunday morning, 8 a.m. before the wind and the crazy boaters. And we have, once you get out in the bay, you can go above the Bay Bridge up to Baltimore. You can go south and aim for St. Michael's, which is a nice touristy place. You really have a lot of flexibility. If you look on a map, the bay is huge. So you have a lot of places you can go. And yeah. I mean, you can travel up to Baltimore for a baseball game, just as Dave Gens has done, and park your boat at the docks there. Oh, right. that's that's a bucket list. Yeah. So, speaking of bucket list, say you are you have a dinner and you can resurrect two surgeons from history. Who would those two surgeons be? Yeah, in terms of vascular trauma, our topic of discussion today, one would be George Henry Makins, who wrote the classic text, 
after World War One, where he described very well the location of vascular injuries, the type of vascular injuries, the first shunts, what repairs were done at that time. And the second individual would be my former chairman, Mike DeBakey, who has a historical perspective because he lived to be 99 on many aspects of surgery. And of course, wrote one of the classic papers on the lack of arterial repairs at World War II, at least up to 1944. Would you bring back young DeBakey or old DeBakey? I'd kind of like to know him, Major <laughs> DeBakey, you know, right after World War II. Be interesting. Yeah, I could tell you a million stories. I, he was very sharp when I was on faculty and he was in his 80s, uh, had a wonderful knowledge of uh, vascular surgery history, which he eventually published in the American Journal of Surgery, all the famous names, what they were responsible for, his contact with them. I mean, the man knew everybody from the foundations of vascular surgery. So I think an older Mike DeBakey would be just fine. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. enough. Well, Dr. McGee, it's your turn, sir. Uh, Los Angeles is a busy city. You're, you are well entrenched there now. Um, if you have a guest coming into town, you've got a lot to do in L.A. if you can avoid the traffic. Uh, where would you take them? Were they tar pits? Would they, you take them to, uh, to the beach? Where would you go? What was the, if I have one day slay over in LA, where, where should I go? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that the, the unique thing about Los Angeles uh, is the, the shoreline is just stunning. It's beautiful. Uh, I would take them to Malibu. Um, the drive through the hills in Malibu and the uh, Santa Monica Mountains and the shoreline is just remarkable. Um, the Getty Villa is out there. So if you want yeah. to go to a museum, it's a stunning view uh, over a uh, stunning shoreline. Fantastic. I've been there and I, I would agree with you. That's a great recommendation. So you're also, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit of a rare breed in that you're, you did trauma and vascular. You did surgical critical care, I should say, and vascular surgery. And I, I get the sense, I know the answer to this question because you really are emerging as a, with your aortic practice, right? So, and less so with the trauma. But for there that handful of us that are dual trained, I often have trouble struggling when I'm asked, are you a trauma surgeon who's interested in vascular or vascular surgeon with interest in trauma? What is the right answer to that question? And is that a simple distinction? Well, I, I, I mean, I think the answer is just a simple yes. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, I completed a, a critical care fellowship, a trauma fellowship, and then a vascular surgery fellowship. Um, in addition to that, a complex aortic um, um, fellowship. So I think, um, you know, my practice is, is uh, predominantly um, vascular surgery. Um, and I, I also do critical care. So almost a week a month um, rounding in the ICU. Also take care of a lot of vascular trauma patients and a lot of my Friends and colleagues are on the other side of the other hospital working on the county patients and will call me or ask me to help out when, when there's vascular trauma. My personal, I love, I love trauma, but the thing I like the most about trauma is the vascular trauma. And so, um, you know, I, I do that. I like to take care of vascular patients every day. Fair enough. I would expect, uh, no, I would expect just that answer from you as someone with both skill sets, but uh, even more training than I have. You've done more fellowships than I have, which has put you in rare breed of crazy. Um, 
you went, uh, you, I, we mentioned you're from Los Angeles, so you're there now, but you, you migrated from the East Coast, correct? I mean, you went to Yale. What do you, what do you miss most about the East Coast? Yeah, that's right. I went to Yale um, undergrad and med school. I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I was a military brat growing up. I lived everywhere um, around the country and um, several different places worldwide. But uh, the things I miss most about the East Coast, I'd say two things. One is the fall. Changing of the leaves in New England is remarkably stunning and beautiful. And I do miss that. We don't really have that to the same degree here in Los Angeles where it's sunny every day. Um, and I, I would say the intensity. Um, there's a certain um, culture, especially in New England, um, of, of very high intensity. that is different than the high intensity uh, in Silicon Valley, where I also lived, um, that, I, that I do um, enjoy and miss. And a, and a good bagel. <laughs> <laughs> you can't find a good bagel in Los Angeles? Just good breakfast. You can't time. find a good bagel outside of New York, in my opinion. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Milos, thank you for entertaining me and letting me ask uh, my two good friends the, their random questions. And with this, I'll, as our new face of the uh, Tiger Country podcast, I'll let you close us out with any words you'd like to say. Well, first of all, a huge thank you to both uh, Dr. McGee and Dr. Feliciano. The, the next time I see you, Dr. Feliciano, I'm bringing two Castros and some proline for my personal <laughs> lessons. <laughs> So Great. I look forward to it. Um, and obviously a huge thank you to Dr. Kundi and, and Dr. DuBose for uh, entertaining us all and, and just a wealth of knowledge for myself and, and everybody that's going to be listening to the podcast. Uh, we thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of uh, Tiger Country. I, I felt like we really did get into the weeds in some difficult areas and we look forward to doing this a couple of times a month moving forward with experts in the field of trauma on a lot of different topics. Uh, and on, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap it up and we'll see everybody on the next episode of Tiger Country. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bohovitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.